0: This week on Political Research Digest, who represents the poor in Congress? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. We know the rich have more tools to influence politics and policy than the rest of Americans. But what about the poorest citizens? In an age of increasing economic inequality, who, if anyone, represents their views and interests? I talked to Chris Miller of the University of Maryland about her new book, Poor Representation, published by Cambridge. She finds that members of Congress in high-poverty districts are not the champions of the poor. Instead, Democratic women and minorities from urban districts tend to introduce bills about poverty, but then have trouble getting them passed, leaving the poor without effective representation even in times of rising poverty. I also talked to Christopher Ellis of Bucknell University about his latest book, Putting Inequality in Context, published by Michigan. He finds that members of Congress are usually more responsive to the opinions of the rich than the poor in their own districts, but moderates and Democrats in competitive districts with unions do represent the opinions of the poor. Low-income constituents are only sometimes visible and have a hard time holding their representatives accountable. Neither Ellis nor Miller challenge the conventional wisdom that the poor are poorly represented, but they see the story as a bit more complicated.
1: The conventional wisdom is that the poor are not represented. And unfortunately, my research largely confirms that. Although, like I said, I I do find that there is some evidence that there are legislators who break from that conventional wisdom. And it's not always who you think it would be.
2: The conventional wisdom, although it's not you know, universal in political science has been most wealthy people get what they want and poor people by and large don't. And so the book sort of confirms that, right? These, these representational differences are real and they exist and they're important and they have consequences. But there were two things about this account that I sort of found a little bit unsatisfying. One is that some of the most kind of straightforward explanations weren't telling the whole story. It wasn't just a matter of oh, wealthy people donate more money so they get more influence, right? There was more, more to the story than that. And second, there's sort of some doubt on the idea that, that, that we should expect what the, that the rich get what they want to be a monolithic thing. And so some research by Peter Enns and Chris Legend and some others sort of cast doubt on that concept generally. But we also know that, that America is a diverse place, and congressional districts and counties are diverse places too. And Congress members in different places face different incentives and represent different kinds of people. And so, there's no reason to expect that this kind of general finding, which I think very much exists in the United States that that the poor are less well represented, would apply everywhere. Would apply the same way everywhere. So the the book sort of I think confirms that the general idea that, look, wealthy people are, are are doing better in American politics from the perspective of representation, but also sort of says, look, maybe we should dig under the hood a little bit and figure out, you know, why that's the case and where it's the case. Miller set out to find
0: who in Congress is trying to address poverty.
1: In this book, I focus on two questions, basically. The first is, are the poor represented in Congress? And then the second is, you know, how does that representation? occur. And my vantage point coming to it is somebody who's interested in legislative process and legislative behavior and kind of unpacking the process of representation, um, including the outcomes, but not only the outcomes. So I think what I look at kind of broadly in the book is what has the attention been to the poor going back to the 1960s in, in many cases and specifically focusing on what Congress has done on issues that are relevant to the poor.
0: And Ellis set out to show why the geographic context of each district
2: matters. The most important finding in low-income people in particular, for everyone, but for low-income people in particular, where you live matters how your government treats you. So I sort of start the book with like a little vignette about the school fun- differences in school funding across states, right? And so a school in, in Minnesota provides sort of lots of kind of redistribution to lower income school districts and, and, and high poverty school districts. Schools in Alabama, which is the other side of the vignette, don't, and in some cases sort of allow the wealthier areas within towns and municipalities to actually secede from the school district and form their own, right? And so it's sort of an intuitive way of saying, look, low-income students face challenges everywhere, but in some places, those challenges are kind of remediated by government action, and in some places, they're actually exacerbated by government action. So local contexts matter. And so if we sort of take this to the representation angle, right, again, thinking that, that representation, democratic representation by your legislator, by your policymaker, sort of core to how the how democracy works, then we might also find variation there, right? That, that depending on where you live, low-income people might be able to sort of get what they want from their congress member or get them to listen or get them to pay attention to their concerns. And in other places, Congress members may have incentives to ignore them or gainsay them or the whole deal. So sort of trying to apply this this idea of context to the, the question of representation. Miller sees both
0: books as about recognizing that the divide between the poor and everyone else is important, not just the divide
1: between the 1% and the rest. Our emphasis has tended to be on the rich versus everyone else. And... That's an important dividing line. I mean, there are real differences there in terms of political influence of those at the very top. And so I don't take away from that frame at all, except the kind of unfortunate thing is that what that tends to do is lump everybody else together, right? And so if we think about, you know, the Occupy Wall Street um, notion of 1% versus the 99%, the trick is that the 99% has some really different Interests, and, You know, that encompasses a lot of people. And so when we start thinking about how this affects policymaking and policymakers, we want to acknowledge those differences. And so I think that's the risk with too much emphasis just on the rich versus everyone else. I think what happens is that it really crowds out attention from the poor. And so that's what I hope to do with this book is to kind of refocus some of our attention about inequality in general on that bottom group and think more about whether they're getting represented in their space specific needs.
0: The big difference is whether to think about representation as about the interests of the poor or their opinions on policy, which may not always match. Ellis made the case for using opinions.
2: Every time I give a public talk about elections or anything, especially to a liberal audience, the question is always, why don't the poor vote in their own interests? And you know, I always sort of have to say, well, it's not really that simple because you don't know their interests, they do. And so, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question, right? In, 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 I, I personally view representation as let's take constituents' preferences as what they are and make sure that, and, or hope that, that, elect, that elected officials try to represent them as best as possible. Um, in some cases, it, it is true that poor people sort of advocate for policies that may go against their own economic interests. And so, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that, you know, the way to get closer to answer that question is by you know trying to figure out why people believe what they believe. And Miller made the case to look at interests.
1: For me, when I think about representation, I really think about the interests as being critical to political representation. And here it's kind of interests as being something different than the public opinion. And I think about interests as kind of being the issues that are, you know, relevant to people's lives, the things that directly affect them that are connected to our experiences and how we how we experience government is often by how our interests are affected. And I also think that, you know, there are- There is a long tradition in the the political science literature of looking at representation of interests. And this is theoretical, thinking of, of work by Pitkin and others, and also in the congressional kind of empirical literature thinking about this. So interests also tend to be more steady. You know, the interest you have as a manufacturing worker or as a coal worker doesn't change that much over time. It's less likely to be manipulated by Uh, campaigns or media, it is less likely to be variations in kind of the amount of information. We tend to know our own interests pretty well. And so when I'm thinking about this for legislators, I think if you're a member of Congress representing, you know, 700,000 people, it can be hard to stay on top of opinions and the changes in opinions, and there can be some variation in that. In contrast, I think when we think about members representing interests, I think it's quite realistic uh, to expect members of Congress to understand the interests of his or her district.
0: But she sees similar findings with both approaches.
1: One of the most exciting things, I think, is the fact that we both find some similar differences despite coming at these questions from different perspectives or, or different vantage points. So the fact that we both find party differences, and especially these rural-urban differences, I think really speaks to the underlying reality. For folks interested in and who care about inequality in politics and and are interested in kind of how the poor are represented in, in American politics, the fact that you can come at it with different data, different types of analysis, different kind of theoretical perspectives on what representation means, and yet still find some of the same things, to me, really should increase our sense that, that these are important things to be looking at. And kind of no matter how you're shaking this, you know, it's still there. And so I really see this as kind of shining or kind of focusing scholars from both the kind of more opinion-based and the, the more interest representation-based way of, of looking at some of these same issues. And Ellis
0: agrees that they reach similar conclusions focused on the importance of surrogates.
2: There's there's a couple things that I think sort of concur with what I'm saying. One is that she sort of finds that when the poor get represented they rely on surrogates, right? People who aren't necessarily poor but are nevertheless advocating for these kinds of interests. So I focus on on unions in my book as a group. Even union members are not poor by either of our definitions, but still advocate for policies that may benefit low-income citizens. The other part that I sort of concur with is that some of these surrogates are not necessarily interested in poverty directly, but are sort of interested in this idea of, of intersectionality and race and gender and things like that. And so they're sort of representing lower income citizens, but doing it in a way that maybe isn't ideal for what most of these people want. Let's dig deeper
0: into each study, starting with Miller. She first sought to dispel the notion that the poor are invisible.
1: Look at all the state of the unions from all the presidents starting in 1960 through President Kennedy, all the way through the last of President Obama's speeches. And I do an analysis of kind of who who gets talked about in these state of the unions. And I find that the poor get mentioned frequently by both Republicans and Democrats. And this is important because the audience for state of the union is members of Congress. They're all sitting there. It's held on Capitol Hill. And so if in the state of the union, the poor are getting mentioned uh, frequently by Republicans and Democrats, it's really hard to say. Congress is unaware of them. Similarly, I I look at the party platforms of both the Republican and Democratic parties and do the same type of analysis. And again, I find both parties are mentioning the poor in their official platforms. So the first real takeaway is that the poor are politically visible, and therefore it's reasonable to expect that poverty-relevant issues would come up in Congress, given that there are 40 million poor Americans.
0: Then she looked at representation by Congress as a whole, representation of district constituents by each member, and representation by others.
1: I look at three forms of representation. The first of these is collectively. So whether Congress as a whole represents the nation as a whole. Here I'm thinking about, you know, does the number of bills Congress takes up in a session overall, how does that relate to the number of Americans living in poverty in a given year? So that kind of macro or more aggregate type of representation. Then I also look dyadically, which is what we've been talking a little bit about and I think is the most common way to think about congressional representation. So here is, you know, does a legislator represent the district that, you know, elected him or her to Congress? So do members from high poverty districts sponsor more bills related to poverty than members from low poverty districts? And as I kept turning up with basically null findings, so I'm not finding much representation in collective ways or dyadically, I approached this third form of representation that I was interested in called surrogate representation, which is a little less common in terms of the literature, but basically is about whether or not legislators act on behalf of citizens who don't live in their district. So this would be members from a wealthier district. Uh, sponsoring poverty legislation. It's not directly related to their constituents, but it's serving people and representing poor in other districts. So those are kind of the three ways that I approached it. She concentrated on bills
0: related to poverty, which she defined broadly, but required a focus on the poor.
1: What I did was I used the Policy Agendas Project data, which takes all the bills introduced in the House. And I'm here looking at the period from 1983 to 2014, so just over 30 years Um, And they code all the bills by content into 22 topic categories and then 220 subtopics. And so what I did was using their data coding scheme was went through and figured out which of these subtopics were applicable and kind of targeting the poor. And so what I did was I included, again, some that we would expect. So things like uh, social welfare programs, food stamps, food assistance, um, school lunch uh, you know, things of that sort, also things that deal with housing. So looking at affordable housing programs, energy assistance programs to the low income and things of that sort. Also looking at programs for the homeless as part of that. Then I wanted to also include some education programs, but again, only education policies that specifically targeted low income students or low income schools So focusing on things like Head Start, adult literacy programs, rural education, bilingual education needs for low income communities, things of that nature. And then to your point, all of these seem to have a a bit of a left or Democratic lean to them. And I I didn't want that to be the case. So I also was um, careful to seek out things that were more bipartisan, more Republican, even more conservative. So there that brought me to focus a lot more on economic and employment types of policies. So uh, job training policies, uh, skills, work incentives, things of that sort. Also looking at unemployment and more general macroeconomic programs, with the idea being that Republicans or conservatives may be more likely to be trying to address poverty through programs that would increase employment, also that would be more tax-based. So I made sure that these policies were not just uh, about starting new social programs, but also could be things like um, an individual tax credit, like the earned income tax credit, or, and that program provides a a tax credit that targets low-income working parents um, by reducing their income tax burden to help incentivize uh, working.
0: She wanted to find out whether Congress responds to poverty, but came up mostly empty.
1: As a whole and as individual district representatives, Congress does not represent the poor. Most notably, legislators from districts with more poor constituents are not more active on poverty issues. And what this means is that a member who represents a district with you know, 20% poverty and a member who represents a district with only 2% poverty That doesn't help us understand what they do in terms of sponsoring poverty legislation or voting on poverty legislation. There's no evidence that 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 is important, which is really striking because we generally think that there's a relationship between who's in the district and what members do. Why don't members
0: from high poverty districts focus on poverty? Miller thinks it's other interests and lacking personal perspective.
1: I think that legislators are actively choosing to to be active on other issues, and they're not choosing to be active on poverty issues. I think some of that can be attributed to kind of the multitude of issues that are coming at members of Congress in their offices and the role that uh, organized interests and others can play in magnifying some of those voices, which does not serve the poor well in a relative sense because they are underrepresented in the interest group community and in advocacy uh, and so forth. I think some of it also reflects the fact that members of Congress generally don't have a lot of personal experience poverty. Their work um, has shown that uh, members of Congress tend to uh, not be representative of, of all income groups and all classes. And so I think that that also removes some kind of personal experience that can be a strong motivator for some members.
0: So she focused on those members that do focus on poverty.
1: There are some legislators who are active on poverty issues, and and I call them kind of champions of the poor that consistently are bringing issues related to poverty to the congressional agenda. And this doesn't mean that their efforts always succeed, but they are doing the work of representing the poor. There's not a lot of them, but they are there. And I think that gives us some hope moving
0: forward. The champions of the poor came in several varieties, but were mostly Democrats.
1: Are there members that consistently are sponsoring bills addressing poverty over the the course of their career. And, you know, the notion that that type of consistency would make them what I call a a champion uh, of the poor, somebody the poor could count on to be their voice. Um, And I do find that that group is uh, disproportionately made up of Democrats, of uh, minorities, particularly African-American legislators, and also of female legislators. I think the reasons for why you've got this set a relatively small set, I should say, the kind of strongest champions of the poor are only about 35 members out of 1400 members that served during this 30 year period. But uh, I think there's largely two reasons for that. One is simply that I, I think that many legislators come to Congress because they care about public policy and um, they care about issues And they have a sense of how they'd like to make things better. And for some of these members, I think that their activity on poverty issues is quite simply just rooted in their own interests, not meaning their own self-interest, but their own interest in policy area, and or their kind of sense of what's the right thing to be doing and, and wanting to address poverty. That There are substantive overlaps about the types of issues that affect minority communities, that affect women, and that affect the poor. And so for some minority and, and female legislators, I think that that kind of intersection uh, really serves the poor well. It helps to bring that those members um, to be more active on issues of poverty, and it also gives their work kind of a distinctive perspective. Uh, notably for women, the types of poverty issues that they tend to sponsor. Uh, Tend to be more gendered issues. So thinking about things like if somebody, if a a working mother uh, loses a parent, but in many cases, this is um, statistically more likely to be a working mother, loses their job, say, due to sexual harassment. How does that get accommodated in work requirements for food stamps or welfare benefits? thinking about childcare issues, some of these issues that we might consider um, to be a more gendered perspective on poverty. There are these kind of old school Democrats, as I call them. These are are largely white male Democrats uh, from the Northeast and the Midwest. They largely came to power or came to Congress before the 1990s. And so they have a kind of different more traditional kind of democratic perspective on things. A a good example of this is a former representative, Ted Weiss of New York. Uh, His own district was was not uh, particularly poor, but he had very much a belief in a more active role for government in helping the less fortunate. And this was a role kind of shared by his constituents, and he was, he was very active on um, poverty issues, including homeless issues. Another group would be Democratic women. And these both include white women and also minority women. And as I mentioned, they tend to focus on more gendered poverty issues, although not, com- not exclusively. And a good example here uh, is former representative Patsy Mink from Hawaii. And so her own district, again, not an especially high poverty district, but she really saw herself as a voice for the poor and for women more broadly than just those in her own district. And so I think, again, uh, here she was somebody that sponsored a lot of legislation. Uh, She was a kind of liberal activist. She actually served Congress in two different periods, uh, in the 60s and 70s, and then came back in the 1990s and early 2000s and kind of can, was consistent across her career in this way. So that's one example. Uh, to round off the Democrats before getting to, I think, the the catchier, which is those Republicans, urban black Democrats are another clear group of champions. Uh, these are a really interesting group in that they often do represent So this is a group that are both surrogates, but also provide some dyadic representation. They're more likely to come from urban districts and urban poor districts. And so a good example here is Representative Gus Hawkins uh, of California, uh, who is a real champion uh, for a lot of broad anti-poverty measures. Uh, during his career, things including education, jobs, housing. He was particularly active, of course, on Head Start um, and the Hawkins-Stafford Act to close the education achievement gap. Now, this fourth category is perhaps the more surprising one, which are a group of Republicans that I call indigo Republicans, because they come mostly from blue or purple states, Uh, they tend to be a little bit more urban than others. And they, I I guess one example of them might be uh, Representative Bill Goodling, who is a Republican representative from Pennsylvania. And he uh, sponsored a lot of legislation addressing issues like literacy, but uh, also kind of these Indigo Republicans have a more business oriented approach that really reflects the partisan difference here. So I I was Mm -hmm. really interested in looking at the types of bills that they sponsor. Um, because it tends to be um, distinctive from these other categories I found. Um, these members are l- not uh, representing poor districts, so they are surrogates, and their policy proposals tend to focus on things like how to use a tax code to address issues related to poverty. A lot of support for programs, like I mentioned, the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit, is a good illustration of the type of poverty legislation that attracted support and initiative from these types of indigo Republicans as well. And
0: here's the kicker. Those who introduced poverty-oriented bills couldn't get them passed.
1: Here we've got these handful of of members, a couple dozen, um, who are pretty consistent in sponsoring bills that address poverty. And so then the the next part of this is, well, what happens to those bills, right? They're invested in being champions and being a voice for the poor. Uh, Does that help them get successfully through the process. And what I find, unfortunately, is that it does not. These efforts are do not result in more successful legislation. Champions are more likely to sponsor poverty-related bills, but they are not more likely to pass their legislation through the full process. And the reason for this is the institutional structure of the House, particularly the importance of the majority party and also of the committee system. So when looking at which bills actually pass the chamber, the key factors are, is the legislator in the majority party, whether they serve on the committee to which the bill was referred, and then also whether they hold a leadership role, either in the party or the committee. And these positions of institutional advantage are what really explain which poverty-related bills pass and which ones don't.
0: So how does the picture change when we look at the opinions of the poor and not just poverty issues? Christopher Ellis reminds us that the poor often share the opinions of other groups, but it's when they don't that it matters.
2: We tend to way overstate the differences in opinion between wealthy and poor citizens, right? That the differences, regardless of issue, are sort of a matter of degree rather than, than magnitude. That lots of issues in American politics don't really prime class interest directly. You know, things like spending on healthcare, education are things that everybody cares about, and so there's not a whole lot of difference there. And even the stuff that's directly related to class interests, things like welfare, we find, you know, some differences that are larger, but still a degree rather than magnitude thing. And it turns out that actually some of the issues related to culture, you mentioned gay rights are where the, some of the biggest differences are. And so what does that mean for representation? Well, one, I mean, one of the things I, I find in the book, and I think other, others have sort of said this too, is that when opinion differences are bigger, representational differences are bigger. And so, what that means is the fact that that low income and high income citizens are actually are not that different differentially well represented may actually be sort of coincidental because they both usually want the same things. And so there's this 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 issue of of sort of opinion convergence between wealthy and poor. But in the cases like you mentioned with welfare and gay rights where we don't see that, then we see bigger representational differences emerge. So again, opinions are reasonably similar across classes on most issues. But when they diverge, that's when politicians have to make a choice. And that's what, what at least my work finds That In, in many cases, what they do is, is represent wealthy citizens over poor citizens.
0: He looked at matches between members of Congress and their constituents in two ways, liberal or conservative political ideology and opinions on specific legislation.
2: I'm using two measures that are bad, but they're bad in different ways. And I think if you find the same result using both of them, you can, you can deal with some of those weaknesses. So one is ideology, where we have a a longstanding history in political science, DW nominate scores, of of placing Congress members on a left-right scale based on their voting behavior. And so there's sort of a zero to one. So you can sort of norm this down to a zero to one scale, zero being the most liberal Congress member, one being the most conservative. We also ask citizens where they place themselves on ideological scales. And so with a couple with a little bit of, of focus pocus and some heroic assumptions, you can sort of scale these things together and say, look, there's a left for citizens and a left for congress members and a right for both of those groups. And we can sort of look to see, you know, how, how closely citizens' views are connected to those of their Congress members. And again, there's there's problems with this, right? That you're comparing voting to um what citizens say on surveys and things like that, but it sort of passes the eye test as left is left and right is right. To sort of deal with some of the, the limitations of that, I also use a measure that, that relies on, on connections between what Congress members actually do on specific matters of public policy. So we look at how they vote on, on a small number of key issues, whether it's sort of to, to end the war in Iraq or to increase welfare spending or whatever it happens to be, to increase the minimum wage, and what citizens say their Congress members should have done in those circumstances. And so again, there's still some problems, right? We're dealing with, with comparing survey questions to actual behavior but sort of trying to triangulate around this idea that that citizens who want their congress member to do something and have their congress member do those same things are better represented than citizens who want their congress member to do something and their congress member does the opposite thing. So trying to sort of compare, you know, not apples to apples by any stretch, but compare what citizens want to what their members actually do, right? And again, this is you know, almost impossible to do perfectly, but using a bunch of measures, you can sort of maybe, again, triangulate around the problem and try to sort of get a sense of what representation looks like. The biggest factors
0: in representation were competition, visibility, and moderation.
2: Are lower income citizens segregated from the rest of their district in ways that they don't get opportunities to participate? Do they have organizations, so I focus on unions in the book, but there are others, that are lobbying on their behalf, right? So Congress members can literally see them and see what they want. Um, and so in places where, where lower income citizens are more sort of visible to their, their Congress members, they tend to get better represented. The second thing is, is whether they're relevant, right? And so the work of, of, of thinking of Karen Jusco in, in Europe sort of set, basically asks the question, when do policymakers actually need to care about the poor? Well, they need to care about the poor when they're necessary to win, to build a winning coalition. And in some places that are competitive or where there's a large number of low-income citizens, then you really need their votes in order to win. And in some cases, you can just disregard them. And so in places that are more competitive, we see, you know, when every vote counts, then, you know, Congress members have to pay attention to their constituents as opposed to, to sort of trying to fulfill all their goals because they need to win re-election. And the last thing is moderation. Um, and so what we what we find in, in, what I find in this book and what we find in other research is that lower income citizens are one, typically more moderate in terms of politics than wealthier citizens on either side of the political spectrum. And they're also what we might call less ideologically constrained, right? They're not consistently liberal or conservative, but they hold left views on some things and right views on other things. And those views don't really fit within modern polarized politics at all, right? And so if you have a more moderate Congress member, or you have someone who has to be attentive to the needs of their moderate constituents, then that also tends to represent the views of the poor a little bit better. The
0: urban poor were also better represented, matching their higher level of participation.
2: The basic point is that, look, in high-income areas, and there's other research that kind of supports this too, but in high-income areas, there's there's two things. One, it's sort of physically easier to participate, right? The polling places are, are easier to get to, the lines are shorter, things like that. And second, there's also social norms of participation, right? That, that sort of voting is what people do. It's just, it's just the way things work. And so even if you're a low-income citizen in those kinds of areas, then you sort of pick up on these social norms and also can take advantage of this ease and convenience. In, in lower-income areas, right, the physical barriers to participation are harder. But there's also sort of this less of a sense of political efficacy, right? Less of a sense that my vote is going to make a difference. My neighbors don't do it. So why should I? And things like that. And so, again, if you have income and sort of have means to overcome this at the individual level, then that's different. But if you're sort of relying, and all people do, regardless of income level, relying in some ways on on social norms and contextual things to sort of decide whether participation is something you should do or not, then it's just harder for people in those areas, right? So, in, in wealthier areas, there's a norm of participation that people pick up on. In lower income areas, maybe that's not there. And so, it becomes harder to overcome those other kinds of barriers.
0: Like Miller Ellis found that Republicans don't represent the poor as well, but that Democrats don't make up for it.
2: Republicans are worse, right, in terms of representing the needs of the poor and that probably shouldn't be shocking to anyone, but it's not like Democrats are sort of making up that gap the other way, right? And so if they're the party that is supposed to be representing the in, the, the interests of low-income constituents, they're not really doing that, right? Or at least not at the expense of of sort of upper-income citizens. So Republicans sort of have an upper income bias than we might expect. Democrats don't have the lower income, the, the bias towards lower income citizens that might counteract that.
0: But the real underrepresentation came from more extreme Republicans, given increasing polarization. And like moderation, most of the kinds of things that improve representation for the poor seem to be on the decline.
2: In sort of cross-sectional one-year-to-time analyses, we find that you know more unionized districts are, are more e- more equally represent constituents more income equal districts more equally represent constituents and 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 on and on more moderate districts of more moderate congress members represent more constituents more equally and sort of all the things that might lead to more equal representation of the poor are declining over time unions are going away parties are becoming more polarized income is becoming more unequal and so you know i again i can't sort of say all of these things are the definitive cause but i think it's at least worth noting that that the stuff that sort of provides a check on just representation of the rich at at the expense of everyone else, those things are becoming weaker over time. One reason Ellis points to is that the poor don't seem to punish
0: their members of Congress for misrepresentation.
2: If you're not being well represented, then why don't you do something about it? And what what I sort of find, and and there's reasons for this too, but sort of find that, look, low-income citizens are less likely to punish Congress members either through their approval or through a vote for them for representing them poorly. Like if a high income uh, citizen on average, right? If a high income citizen sees that they're not getting what they want, then they'll view their Congress member less favorably and low income citizens are less apt to do that. And so part of this is, is sort of maybe looking at, at the issue of representation as a demand side problem. That if you don't show your Congress member that you care that you're not being represented, then they being sort of a rational reelection seeking person really is no incentive to listen to you. And so we're sort of trying to unpack a little bit, you know, why that might be the case. And again, are there contexts where low-income citizens are sort of encouraged to hold their congress member more accountable? Because if you're not well represented and you don't care, then, you know, there's no incentive for any of that to change.
0: They also tend to want their values and not just their interests represented.
2: Ideology and issue attitudes are are connected enough that we can sort of make sense of politics by looking at one or the other we still have this this weird gap between people who call themselves conservatives but support liberal economic policies and so maybe that's why conservatives get elected and maybe that's why there's the economic policy isn't quite as liberal but i think you know one thing we also sort of know from this this not just my work on on use of lower income citizens is that they want their values represented as much as they want their policy preferences represented and you know it it's kind of seems weird saying this in the Trump era, but the sort of you know commitment to kind of traditional family life in America the way it was and all this other sort of stuff, I think that's at least as important to people as as what government does, does in terms of policy. So I think that that very much still still matters, right? That citizens, you know, they care about you know whether taxes go up or down. they care about whether the, you know the schools are funded or not. But they also care about whether government sort of looks like, sort of at a more instinctual level, looks the way they want it to look.
0: And Ellis is not expecting much change from the new Democratic-controlled House.
2: Polarization isn't going away. So, you know, the Democratic takeover of Congress might be important at the margins. But again, I mean, two things. One, polarization continues at its its runaway pace. and, And sort of that's, I don't see any way that changes in the near term. And it's not just sort of Congress members becoming more extreme. It means there's less grounds to get anything done, right? There's less grounds for compromise. And to the extent that, you know, low-income citizens are less interested in fighting, you know, proxy ideological battles and really just sort of want some pragmatic things to make life better, that's less likely to happen in a polarized Congress, right? And so, no, I I don't see a whole lot changing in the near term.
0: Miller, on the other hand, sees some potential for the issue agenda to change, though not the results.
1: So I do think that the Democratic Party taking control in the House is important because uh, both the partisan dynamic of it, but also because, as you point out, it's going to be a very diverse majority party with greater representation of the types of legislators that are more likely to advocate uh, on poverty issues and to bring these types of issues to the table. So because of that, I do think that these members are, are more likely to sponsor legislation that raises issues related to poverty and to poor Americans' experience and in their interests and their needs than otherwise. So if we're looking at what are the, what is the congressional agenda, what are the issues on the table? It, I would anticipate that, that these members will bring those issues there. And I think that's an important uh, step. I think that The loss of indigo Republicans matters, particularly for the types of legislation that are in the conversation, uh, because Republicans do bring a unique perspective from the door, not unique, I guess, just different perspective than the Democrats do to how to address poverty. Um, I think the loss of indigo Republicans will, will take some of that perspective out of the conversation in a way that perhaps isn't good for the broader policy making discussion and dialogue. I'm more optimistic about the agenda and less optimistic about the outcome, because part of this is the internal structure of kind of the processes we talked about. We still have divided government. So you're going to have the, the Democratic House trying to work with the Republican Senate and a Republican president. Uh, so I think for any legislation, including poverty legislation, that's going to make success difficult. So what can we
0: do to improve representation of the poor? Miller sees a few lessons for interest groups.
1: It would help the poor to have a louder voice in the interest group community. This is a bit of a Pollyanna-ish takeaway to simply say, well, we need more interest groups. So I think a perhaps smaller but more practical takeaway point might be that um, that are out there that are working for the poor um, and advocating for poverty issues to be addressed, need to really think about who to target to work with, where those partnerships might be. Um, and hopefully my my work suggests that it's not always the, the usual suspects that you might want to partner up with. There are these members that don't come from poor districts, but that would be really valuable partners for, for advocates and, and outside organizations. So uh, that might be something that that could be a a useful takeaway. I also think that the increasing diversity of Congress is something to keep an eye on. And so folks that are interested in that and perhaps active in, in recruiting citizens to run for Congress, I think that that increased diversity should go some way to increasing surrogate representation of the poor. And- Certainly, you know, uh, also any efforts to recruit people that have uh, more modest beginnings themselves, um, more modest life experiences, and to bring that to Congress would be useful. I think the other thing to keep an eye on is just what happens with all this populist rhetoric that's bouncing around politics today. You know, it is on both sides, which if one is an optimist, you could imagine some place for coming together and, and both parties seeing it in their interest to talk about issues that relate to poverty and to the near poor. I think both President Trump in 2016, with Senator Sanders in 2016, and since then have, have brought attention to. But the perhaps more cynical side uh, would also say that in the two years since uh, those two uh, brought a lot of populist rhetoric to the national conversation, there has not been a lot of action on poverty issues. So I think we got to wait and see, but I wouldn't hold your breath, I suppose.
0: And Ellis says we need to make the
2: concerns of the poor and their moderation more visible. The big takeaway from the book is the visibility part, right? That low-income citizens may not make themselves as visible to you, either physically or sort of in in terms of, of understanding their concerns as other people might. And this might be subtle, right? It's not just receiving a check in the mail. But it's, you know, getting a letter or, you know, maybe residential segregation that means you don't hold a town hall there and things like that. So sort of if you care about this, right, trying to sort of bridge that divide and sort of, you know, if they're not going to come to you, then maybe you need to come to them and understand their term. And and the second thing I would sort of say is that, you know, again, low income citizens are not. Particularly well served in a highly polarized, kind of ideologically constrained, you know, far left, far right environment, right? That they, they have a mix of left and right views. You know, it's not as simple as culturally conservative and economically liberal, but it's sort of that. And so trying to sort of understand those concerns and represent them is, is difficult. To use a real stylized example, right? Joe Manchin who represents, you know, one of the least well-off states in the country, but just got reelected, right, in the state that Trump won by 45,000 percentage points or whatever. He listens to his constituents, right? And when they want protection for pre-existing conditions, right, like a tax cut for the rich, he'll do that. When they want to get Brett Kavanaugh confirmed, he'll do that too, right? And so that's the kind of representation, you know, just to pick one example, but that's the kind of representation that works. Both scholars are continuing their work on representation. Miller's
0: next step is to focus on the underrepresentation of the rural poor.
1: It was really something that jumped out, I think that it's really meaningful, both from a representation standpoint and from a policy standpoint, because there are really different interests that the rural poor and the urban or suburban poor have. So, you know, when we think about issues like housing or education, it means something quite different to think about issues of affordable housing in a metropolitan area or more urban area. And then to think about some of the issues that affect the rural poor, you know, it, it might be simply access to housing right or distances to a school that provides breakfast or or a head start program. and so i think the underrepresentation and and this is not to suggest that the urban poor or the suburban poor, you know, have all their interests being heard. All poor Americans are underrepresented when it comes to our politics, but the rural poor seem to be especially underrepresented. And I think that's in part from my perspective because the surrogate representatives are rarely from rural districts.
0: And Ellis plans to focus on
2: how citizens
0: learn from their representatives and what they want from them.
2: Let's try to figure out why elected officials aren't punished more for representing certain constituents poorly, whether it's by income or by race or whatever else. And so you know part of that is figuring out why people believe what they believe, but part of that is trying to sort of understand at a deeper level where citizens get information about what their Congress member does. because we're sort of making this assumption that people, you know they're not reading Congressional quarterly, but basically know you know where their Congress member stands and what they're up to and things like that. And that assumption is certainly not true everywhere. And so let's figure out where citizens are getting information, how they perceive their Congress members, how they react to them, the kinds of things they're voting on. And the second part of this, I think, is Jeff Harden's work at, the, at Notre Dame now, but sort of looks at what kind of representation citizens want, right? Which is sort of the unanswered question of focusing on policy here, which I obviously think is important, but maybe citizens care less about that and just want like the potholes repaired and things like that. And so if they're getting represented that way, then maybe it doesn't matter you know, whether you vote to, to you know extend... Funding for a war or something like that. And so let's try to sort of figure out, you know, at the, at the surface level, what citizens are actually asking for from their Congress members and what they're learning about what their Congress members actually do.
0: There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Christopher Ellis and Chris Miller for joining me. Please check out their books, Putting Inequality in Context and Poor Representation. Then join us next time.